I forgot my paperwork. Good morning. Happy New Year. Almost. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Matthew 2, 13. No evening service required tonight. Uh, you'll see, you'll make a note there in the bulletin that we are uh, a little behind on the uh, finances, so faithfulness for the new year. Uh, no prayer service this week. There's a church white elephant gift and service party on Friday, January the 18th, and it's here at the church. It says more details later. I'll just give the more details right now because here's the flyer. It's going to be up on the board out there. White elephant gift exchange and service project night, Friday, January 18th, 630. What to bring? A wrapped white elephant gift. It can be anything used from your home or new, but supposed to not exceed $10. Also bring a snack food to share, scissors, and maybe a hammer, as, as we will be. <laughs> okay. Uh, we'll be making fleece blankets and assembling toy cars. Two pieces of complementary fleece that are one and a half to two yards each. The cars and the blankets uh, made during our fun night will be deno uh, donated to uh, Children's Hospital. So if you didn't get all that, this will be posted. You can look at it. Do any of you all do the white elephant thing at your Christmases? Mm -hmm. we, we do that. It's, it, we've kind of gone to that instead of the, the traditional exchange. It's, it's a lot of fun. So, All right, put that on your calendar. Um, number six there, you'll see again Andrea's number for texting the prayer chain. Um, offering envelopes for 19 are here. If you've not taken yours, uh, go ahead and do that. And the pastor uh, thanks to the church for the gift and cards. All right, anything else? Oh, free grace broadcaster. So these are also here and available. Make use of those. All right, scripture for meditation this morning, Hosea. The 11th chapter.
Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless us as we worship. Phil, can I pick on you again today? Read Trinity Hymnal this morning and turn to number 225. 
We have a favorite Christmas hymn this morning. I'm not looking at you because you picked last week. Didn't you pick last week? I'm suspicious still. Anyone else? <laughs> Mercy. That's not quite Christmas, but what number is it? The new one or the old one? The new one. That's in the red. There are two different um, uh, melodies to that hymn. Is it the one your daddy likes? Is it the one your dad likes? You don't know. All right, do you have a reason for this hymn, Mercy? Say it one more time, honey. Yep, 500. This is the newer tune. Is that the one you wanted?
scripture reading is in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 11 through 20. Would you please stand with us as we read the scripture? Page 1498 in the Pew Bible, reading from the NIV. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. Oh Lord, please add your blessing this holy an inspired word. Amen. Take your red hymnal again and turn to number 218, 218 in the Trinity hymnal.
Our scripture text this morning is Matthew chapter 2. You know, last Sunday we began a short series on the geography of Jesus' life beginning first with Bethlehem, the birthplace. We learned that Bethlehem was an ancient town with a timeless future. It's found in the Old Testament where its original name was Ephrath, prophesied by Micah to be the place where the Christ child would be born the one who would be the savior of God's people and who would rule the nations. God used a decree of Caesar Augustus to get Joseph to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, that's about a three days' journey, to register for a census. And while there, Mary delivered her firstborn child, which we know to be Jesus. We drew out a couple of lessons. Number one, from Bethlehem, the house of bread, that's what the word Bethlehem means, came one who was the bread of heaven, the one to feed our souls. We learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, be it the written word or the living word, the Lord Christ. Secondly, Bethlehem was the city of Israel's great king, David, but more importantly, it is the birthplace of that one who is titled King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus was David's Lord, not simply his son. And then we come to today's message where we're dealing with Egypt, the hiding place, the hideaway to which Jesus with his parents, fled from Herod's terrible slaughter. God was superintending over this child and over this couple uh, as he prepared to bring the Savior of sinners into the world. So, as we come to our study, let's ask for the Lord's intervention. Holy Father, please send your Holy Spirit to teach us of these truths. God has never been popular with the sinful heart of men, nor God's Son. But because they could not reach God, they did reach out to capture and try to destroy your Son. And in time, you handed your Son over to these evil forces. But not before not before he accomplished that which you intended, namely the salvation, the sacrifice of himself for the sins of his people. Help us to understand these things, that God, not man, God is in control of history. And I pray that you'll bless our study. Thank you for each one here today. Pray for those, Lord, that couldn't make it out because of sickness, or maybe they're away. But bless them and bring them back safe. In Christ's name, amen. 
We're looking today in the text in Matthew 2 at Egypt, the hiding place. You know by now that what is depicted in the most tellings of the Christian Christmas story is not true. I'm referring to those accounts where Jesus is portrayed in a stable stall lying in a feed trough surrounded by shepherds and three wise men dressed in very expensive garb. Matthew's account before us picks up the storyline. I want you to note the time reference. It is two years after the birth of Jesus, verse 16. Two years after. So what does that make him? Well, he's repeatedly called a child. He's not a little baby anymore. Verse 7, verse 9, verse 10, verse 13. It's all the way through this text. The Greek term is a word, pideon, a young child. We get the word pediatrician from this Greek word, a doctor that takes care of kids. A young child, almost exclusively used of preschool children. In contrast, Luke's account with the shepherds give this sign, are given this sign, you will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger, Luke 2, verse 12. Different Greek word. It's the word that's used of an unborn baby that is yet in the womb, as in the case of Elizabeth's baby in Luke 1, verse 12. 44, or of a newborn, as in the case of Jesus. As a baby, Jesus was born in a stable, placed in a feed trough, because, as you know, there was no room in the inn for him. And it is to this location that the shepherds came. Two years later, two years later, Jesus, the child, the toddler, is no longer in a stable, but in a house. Look at verse 10. And it is into this house that the Magi entered and presented their gifts. Verse 11. Now, as to why Joseph and Mary were still in Bethlehem two years after the census had Ordered, been ordered by Augustus, we don't know why they're still there. But it is likely that since Joseph was from Bethlehem, that he had relatives there, and what is more, he could ply his carpentry trade wherever he was. All we know is that they remain in Bethlehem. While I'm on the subject, there is no indication in our text of how many wise men came from the east. The number three is an assumption. And the assumption is based on the three gifts mentioned in verse 11. But the reality could just as easily be five kings presenting three kinds of gifts as three kings presenting three kinds of gifts. 
My caution here is that we need to watch out for assumptions, brethren. Because assumptions become traditions. And that is where we are today. Everyone assumes three wise men. And they assume that the shepherds and the wise men came to Jesus at the same time. So all the nativities that you see on the lawn displays picture the stable scene with all of these visitors there. Shepherds, wise men, you name it. We even make hymns. We three kings of Orient are. Right? They count three gifts and they say, well, three kings. That's an assumption. Whenever that happens, the truth is obscured by traditions and because of tradition. You say, well, how important are the details? Well, they're not as important as denying the deity of Jesus, that's for sure. But patterns are developed by people who play footloose and fancy free with interpreting the Bible. And that is why I have trouble with much of the Christian fiction on the market, especially Fiction concerning the end times, whoa, go into any Christian bookstores and there's racks and racks of books concerning the end times that are fiction. People read these things and they say, well, could have happened that way. Or they read them and they say, it might happen like that. Could have, might be. Before long, the fiction is being taught as doctrine. This was the great error of the Pharisees. And Jesus took to task on the matter. Here's what he said. Let me read it for you. Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your traditions? You nullify the word of God for your traditions. Matthew 15, verse 3 and 5. And Mark pipes up that Jesus went on to say, And, you Pharisees, do many things like that. Mark 7, verse 13. Many things like that. They teach their traditions as though it were the teachings of God's word. Many things like that? Yeah. There was never a regulation about having to wash your hands before you ate food. You'll not find that in the scriptures. No regulation on how far a person could travel on the Sabbath, called the Sabbath day's journey. The Pharisees designed that. No law of God prohibiting works of mercy on the Sabbath. Somebody fell in a ditch and got hurt or whatever, or an animal. These were all the inventions of men, fiction taught as truth for so long that it became their traditional explanation of how a good Jew would live his life. All traditions. We're not innocent either. We have our traditions. 
They've done the same with regard to Christian living, forbidding everything from abstaining from certain foods that you shouldn't eat to not drinking wine to not going to movies to not dancing. On and on and on. Now whatever good motives may be behind such things, the basic principle of going beyond the word of God by making men's opinions more vital than the word of God leads to a caustic scolding from Christ himself as with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were known for this. That is, developing a tradition for everything and making the tradition more important than what God said in his word. Sadly, the New Testament church has its share of the descendants of the Pharisees still alive, still well in our midst, making up rules. I grew up in a Baptist church that had so many rules for young people, it was unbelievable. And the youth advisors would sit right there in our youth meetings, make sure that we abided by the rules. And then as I grew older in the things of God, I learned there's only one rule giver. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's gospel. And what men come up with isn't always gospel. Sometimes it's just, hmm, I think, or the way I see it is, who cares what you think? Who cares about the way you see it or the way I see it? What does the scripture say? What does God say? Secondly, observe that Herod was up to no good from the beginning when he sent the wise men away, saying this, Go and make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. Oh yeah, right. Verse 8. What is Herod doing? He's playing Mr. Humility here. Like there was ever another king, let alone a baby king, to whom Herod would bow down and worship. You know anything about Herod's life? This is Herod the Great, who was known for his willingness to wield his sword against anyone, including his own family, wife, children, what have you, whom he suspected of treachery or infidelity towards him. He had his own wife killed. He had his own children killed. Who is this Herod? Well, he was appointed to his position in 40 B.C., by Julius Caesar, you know about him, and he was bestowed with the title king, a title sparingly bestowed by the Roman Senate. But Herod's prize of Judea had to be fought for and won, however, because the Parthians, who were enemies of Rome, had established a Hasmonean king there, and it was three years' war which finally resulted in Herod 
being victorious. Thanks to the help of Mark Antony, yeah, the same Mark Antony was hooked up with Cleopatra. He helped Herod win. And so Herod somehow won the affection of Octavia, the emperor, and was solidified in Judea as king until his death. Herod married a Hasmonean woman, one of 30 wives. 30 wives. But he always held this woman in suspicion, she and her two sons. And he later had them executed for conspiracy. And his son, Antipater, by another wife, was also executed for trying to poison him, or at least Herod thought he was trying to poison him. Herod became known as a ruthless king who was not to be trifled with. Any and all rivals were either imprisoned or executed or both. And it is no surprise that he would immediately set in motion a plan to eradicate this one the Magi claimed was born king of the Jews. He didn't come up with that. The Magi said that to Herod. Who's the, we're, we're looking for this one born king. Oh, he heard that. Born king. Hmm. A rival. No, I'm the only king of the Jews. I'm the one that's been appointed by Caesar Octavius. And from the time Herod heard of the birth of Jesus, a plot was hatched in his mind, conveyed to Joseph by the angel who awoke him in the night saying, Get up, get up, take the child and his mother, escape to Egypt, stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Verse 18. You see, God knows the thoughts and the intents of the heart. David put it this way, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You are familiar with all of my ways. And before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Psalm 139, verse 1 and following. And verse, verse 16 confirms that God had not misrepresented Herod's intent. We read, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, that's verse 12, by not reporting back to Herod their findings, of course, he was furious. Boy, you don't want to get Herod furious. This man doesn't need much to drop the, you know, coin on his enemies. He was furious and he gave orders, get this, to kill all the boys in Bethlehem. Oh, and its vicinity. How far out from Bethlehem that went, I don't know. Kill all the boys in Bethlehem in the vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi, verse 16. 
You see, Herod was no dummy. He calculated how old Jesus would be based on the time the star had appeared to the Magi, verse 7, and to hedge his bet, he decided to kill all the boy toddlers aged two and younger. This is a bloody man. I don't know how many boys that would be in Bethlehem at that time. But since Rome had required all of the people to return to their hometowns for the census, I gather that there were a lot of boy babies in Bethlehem, two years old and younger. But before Herod was ever outwitted by the Magi, he had been outwitted by God Almighty. The Bible says of God, he thwarts the plans of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness and he scheme, and the schemes of the wily are swept away. Job 5, verse 12 and 13. The psalmist declared, the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Psalm 33, verse 10 and 11. No little potentate, though he calls himself Herod the Great, is going to snuff out the life of God's son before he's old enough to write his name. Now right, in time, God will hand Jesus over to one of Herod's descendants, Herod the Tetrarch, one of Herod's sons, who received one-fourth of Herod's former territory, according to Matthew 14, verse 1. But not here, and not now, and only within God's timetable and providence. The prayer of the Jerusalem believers later asserted this. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. That means the Messiah. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Acts 4, verse 27 and 28. So yes, in time. Christ was handed over to the civil authorities. But not while he was a baby and not under Herod the Great. So here's another conspiracy against Jesus, and this time by Herod's son, also within the intent of murdering him. And this time it is successful because the plan has the backing and the power and the, of the will of God. The cross was the plan of God all along. But the killing of Jesus as a baby was not in God's plan. So that wicked design was thwarted. 
Psalm 2 is quoted in the Acts passage, and it's wise for us to recall its message as well. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, Herod would be one of them, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers together against the Lord and his anointed one. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Knowing, of course, that they can't do anything without God's permission and God's approval. See, there are kings, and then there is the king of kings and lord of lords. There are self-appointed potentates, and then there is the one who is the supreme God almighty that even the kings must answer to. Thirdly, I want you to note God's preservation of Jesus when he was so small and so helpless as a child. There was a vulnerability here. Joseph was awakened in the night and he was told to flee with Jesus and Mary to Egypt and to stay there until further word, verse 13. And you can see there's a sense of urgency here and Joseph took it as being urgent. We might imagine the beating of the horses' hoofs on the cobblestone streets of the entrance to Bethlehem. And even as Joseph and his family stole away under the cover of darkness, verse 14, so he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and he left for Egypt. No waiting. There's no waiting till morning light. There's no waiting for a more opportune time to travel the roads. No, he made haste. Lives were at stake. God's will was made clear. Joseph was quick to obey, and I have no doubt that his quick reaction played a large part, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, in the success of his escape and the preservation of Jesus' life. Joseph doesn't always get the credit he deserves. This guy hears a word from God in a dream or whatever. This isn't, the, this isn't the only time. This is another time here. And he doesn't dilly-dally around and think it through and what was that all about and gee, we got time. No, 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 none of that. He gets his feet moving. None of this was by accident or happenstance Verse 15 states, And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. That prophecy is from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 and following. And originally referred to the Israelites who were captives in Egypt, right? Before the great exodus under Moses. But before Egypt was ever prison to Israel, it had been a refuge for Jacob, you will remember, whose name was changed to Israel. It was a refuge to him and his family 
in the time of the great famine when Joseph administered the food which fed the known world of that day. And now in Jesus' day, it had become a refuge again for Jacob's heir, of whom he predicted, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes, he comes, to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Genesis 49, verse 10. Well, guess what? Bethlehem is in the province of Judah. We established last week that Jesus was born in this city of David of the house of Judah. Matthew 1, verse 3, verse 6. Now, there's some important lessons here for us. Obvious, it kind of jumps off the page, is the lesson that parental love, when informed, when informed, preserves its children from hostile environments by removing them from danger. And that goes for God's children too. We are instructed to flee at times, to hide at times. Bethlehem was soon to become the slaughter ground for an enraged and wicked king who disvalued human life. Anyone who stood in his way, Herod eliminated. His conscience did not bother him one bit if his victims were women or children, whether they were law-abiding citizens or innocent toddlers if they were even so much as a potential threat to Herod, he imprisoned them or had them murdered by his soldiers. I think he's a very insecure man when you think about it. We also live in a very dangerous world. And our children are subjected to situations which endanger them both physically and spiritually. On occasion, public schools have become war zones with bullies beating up on the defenseless or even smuggling knives and guns into classrooms. Can't even ride the bus without... Kids being beaten up. I was reading on a story on that not too long ago. Somebody with their camera even got it on video. These kids beating up some guy on the back seat of the bus. In the spiritual realm, it's even worse. I heard of a kid who was made to stand in the corner of the classroom while his, his classmates made fun of him. What was his offense? He was reading his Bible in the school cafeteria on his lunch break. To this we might add the anti-God, anti-scientific theory of evolution being crammed down their throats 
the ridicule of wearing Christian symbols on t-shirts and the like, being given a failing grade for writing a paper on a Christian theme, all this is in the news, being forbidden to hold a Bible study on school property after hours, In some cases, there's no reasoning with school officials on these things. The ACLU has been running scared for fear of lawsuits. The ACLU, which promotes and defends child pornography and supports sexual predators of children, all in the name of free speech does everything in his power to stifle Christian free speech. If we are conscious of these things, then the only recourse might be to remove our children from state-run schools and teach them at home, which a lot of Christian parents have decided to do. Or in a proprietary Christian school. Jesus was not left in Bethlehem to suffer the consequences of Herod's wicked agenda. Joseph and Mary whisked him away to Egypt by night. They got him out of harm's way as soon as possible. And they kept him out of harm's way. Till God said, okay, it's safe. (laughs) You can return home. Say, well, what about the other children of Bethlehem? Well, we think they were left to die. And they were. Their parents were uninformed and could not have known Herod's intent. And so in his sovereignty, God permitted them to remain in ignorance and for their children to suffer death. And having said that, I would also say that those children's death was not in vain. They became the unconscious but true martyrs of Christ, dying literally for Christ's sake. For apart from Jesus, Herod would have left them alone. And when they died, and as a result of their death, Jesus was permitted to escape in peace and to live his life in Egypt without pursuit by Herod and without further endangerment. In this way, they played a vital role in the plan of God in saving his son from premature death. They took the sword. For their Savior. And you can be sure that he carried the cross for them. We should learn in all of this not to be unduly grieved at our losses and sufferings for Christ's sake because the cause of God, the cause of God is safe and sound. His reward shall follow. 
the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him, says James, chapter 1, verse 12. Or Jesus told his disciples, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Matthew 19, verse 14. However much the parents of those Bethlehem children love their babies, I think Jesus loved them more. Jesus loved them more. Secondly, Herod's attack was fomented on a spiritual level against God. That's the bottom line behind all this. Not just the intellectual perception that Jesus was a threat to his earthly throne. Herod was fighting God. Knowingly so. How do we know this? As you reread this account, you will observe, verse 2, that when the Magi allowed, uh, showed up on Herod's doorstep with this tale about seeing a peculiar star in the sky and following it for months, they said, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Verse 2. There is not the slightest questioning on Herod's part about this mysterious star. He did not refute their claim. He did not say, you guys are pulling my leg. Who are you kidding? His star. Yeah, right. His star. There's none of that. Instead, we are told, Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star appeared. Verse 7. He's a believer in the star. The sign of the star that's attached to this particular child. Secondly, Herod surmised that whoever this child was, his kingdom was of a spiritual nature because the wise men spoke of worshiping him. So in feigned obedience, he says to the Magi, go, make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. Verse 8. Well, see, men worship God, or their pagan understanding, those they consider to be gods. So Herod's right in there. He's got his fist against his understanding of who God is. Thirdly, Herod did not blink an eye when upon asking where the Christ or the Messiah was to be born, the Jewish theologians answered, in Bethlehem, in Judea followed by the quotation from Micah 5. 
So what I'm saying is that Herod believed these prophecies. And in sending his troops to Bethlehem later, he acted upon that belief. He knew he was attacking the anointed one of God. He thought of Jesus as the Messiah, still did not hesitate to raise his arm against him. I think it's wise, brethren, for us to know our own hearts. Too often we claim ignorance in our conduct. If only I had known that you were... No, the evidence is clear. We have a whole Bible of evidence proclaiming Jesus as God's one and only Son. First in prophecy and then in fulfilled scripture. So if you're an unbeliever, you're without excuse. You're fighting a spiritual battle, not just an intellectual battle. You know the nature of the one with whom you have a controversy. You're like Herod, slaughtering the innocent bystanders when the real person you are after is God. But just as Jesus in the cradle was mightier than Herod on his throne. People's rebellion against God and his son will not succeed. God calls upon you and me to repent and to cease our rebellion to sue for peace. There's not one thing a person can say to justify their resistance to so gracious a Savior. If Christ, the baby, was a terror to King Herod, what will the outcome be when you stand before Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords? When he's seated upon his throne in glory, assuming his rightful place of Lord of the nation. Thirdly, I want you to learn that God calls all of his sons and daughters from out of the world, out of Egypt. And until that effectual call, they are hidden there, safe, as if in a sanctuary. God's children are not in jeopardy of being lost to the evil of the age because God has marked them out as his. Every one of us who is a believer here this morning, our names were written in the heavenly Lamb's book of life before one of those days ever came to be. Revelation 17, verse 8. We were all part of the world and its philosophy. What I am saying is that God finds his people in the world. This is where we lived. This is how we thought. Paul writes it this way. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires, its thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature 
objects of wrath. Ephesians 2, verse 3. Guess what? Living in a sinful world, being part of it, isn't all fun and games. The world beats up on its own citizens. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. Proverbs 13, verse 15. Or again, verse 21. Misfortune pursues the sinner. Proverbs 15, verse 20. Or again, Proverbs 5, verse 22. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnares him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. Or Proverbs 15, 15. All the days of the oppressed are wretched. And Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes 2, Verse 22 and following. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving? All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. That's our life in this world without Christ. It doesn't sound like paradise to me. We were all at one time of this world. Following its desires and thoughts, says Paul, and our families and friends and neighbors and co-workers were part of the same system. Maybe you've had it rough in life, beat up by friend or foe alike. Treated kindly by some, abused by others. This is the ugliness of our world. But God calls his children out of Egypt. Every one of us called out of Egypt. Out of the world. Christ the sinless son and every sinning son called out of Egypt. Hidden in Egypt, even unknown to our own consciousness. God has his people and he has sent his son Jesus to lead them out of Egypt to the promised land. This is how Paul put it to the Ephesians saying, all of us also lived among them at one time. But because of his great love, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. By grace you have been saved. God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ without hope, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Ephesians 2, verse 3 and 4. 
Whatever the scars Egypt has inflicted on you, whatever the stripes laid to the back of Christ will heal your wounds. He died to set his people free from their bondage. By his wounds, says Peter, we are healed. Thank you, Lord, for such a marvelous Savior today. We come into a new year, we think of how we might live for you this year, this coming year. Empower us to do better than we did last year. Do we still have relatives and friends that don't know Christ as Savior? Well, what have we done about it? Have we lived the gospel before them? Have we voiced the gospel? People need to see more than just our good lives. They need to hear a good word from our lips because they don't know what is the reason for our good lives. Unless we tell them that it isn't us. It's not that we turned over a new leaf in and of ourselves but that God was gracious to us in Jesus. And we need to say that and continue to say it. And in saying it, call sinners to come to Christ as well. And this year, blossom into the salvation of your grace into our family and friends, our children, our grandchildren, This might be the year they come to know you as Savior. We pray this for your glory. You are glorified every time even just one sinner comes to know you. And we pray for their good because they think they have the good life with their roots down deep into the soil of this world. No, the good life is to have our roots down into the soil of Christ, the one who is the branch that brings forth great abundance. I pray that you will help us to see that. Thank you for being who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity 226. Let's stand as we sing. Two, two, six.
know where the hymn writer is getting that last verse, at least, in the hymn. It says in the Revelation, in heaven there's no sun and there's no moon. Why? Because Christ is the light. That's why. Not only is he the light of the world in terms of spiritual truth, dispelling the darkness of sin and suffering, but he is the light of glory. And to have Christ is to have the light. We are dismissed. Thank you.